Hi, I'm indie fantasy author Melinda Cusera, and in this episode of Fantasy Lore and More, Christopher Metzen is joining me to talk about his book, Half Sword. So welcome, Christopher. And why half sword? Why not a whole sword? <laughs> or a flaming sword? Or an ice sword? <laughs> swords. It's got to be swords, Melinda. I mean, otherwise, it either swords or dragons. I mean, That's otherwise, true. It's fantasy. Why not have both, though? <laughs> why not the dragon sword? <laughs> A dragon sword. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but but why half sword? Like, th- does he only have half of a blade? Like, that's the picture I'm getting in my head. Like, did it break and he needs to find the other half and put them together or something? Or is that a specific type of blade? Well, it's actually half sorting is a fighting style. Oh. Um, but it has nothing to do with this book. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> it, it is a fight. It is a half sorting is when the um, and oh, I wish I brought a sword now. Heck, um, it's when the uh, when the fighter, the knight or whatever, takes the he takes the the hilt, the pommel of the sword, and holds it, and then he holds. And I can't do this on the screen because I'm not I'm not cl- I'm too close. But he holds it actually with a mailed or a, a, an an armored glove. He holds it about halfway up the sword. On the edge, but the 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 armor, of course, protects his his hand, and then he can put a lot of he can put a lot of thrust into that. I see. And it's particularly used in close combat and melee. I see. So that's when you really absolutely have to smash somebody's helmet. <laughs> yeah, right, or or cut through a uh, you know a a. a uh, uh, like a, a a male throat guard of some sort, or or um, uh, it's all technique to get through the the other uh, fighter's armor. And of course, what does come up in Half Sword in the book is some of the fighting techniques, which um, definitely includes the, a dagger. And the the dagger or that that they use was almost more of a spike, and it was made to penetrate armor and to uh, essentially to get into very close combat with your opponent so that he couldn't use his sword and then get your dagger into him before he got his dagger into you. Mm. And um, that comes up in the book a little bit. I I try not to get too too much into the technical fighting. Um, One thing, I'm not terribly an expert, but the other thing, it can get boring if you if you uh, dwell on it too much, then all of a sudden the scenes aren't exciting. They're just, uh, uh, you know, fencing. a technical manual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. not, that's not a good book. So, but I think, I think some gives it flavor or not flavor um, makes it interesting because that's not. Authenticity. Yeah. And, and um, I believe it was Algis Budras that, you know, said that it's really the authors has to respect their reader enough to make sure that everything is authentic, everything that they've done their research, they've done their homework, that they present a real situation and not try to just make things, you know, kind of smooth over things and hope the reader won't uh, notice the hole in the in the plot. And, yeah. and you know, so it's it's a matter of respecting the reader. Yeah. 
And that's why characters make questionable decisions sometimes. Because, yeah, it'd be great if they could teleport to somewhere else and do the thing. But they can't teleport. <laughs> exactly. exactly. You know, they have to actually walk there. So, you know, that, that takes time. And, and yes. there may be trials yes. involved, you know. Yes. And uh, or riding a horse. Yeah. You know, you should Before you write about horsemanship and riding or horsewomanship or whatever, horsepersonship, before you write write about horses at all, um, at least get someone to show you a horse, and at least get on a horse if you can, and uh, you know harness and unharness a horse and see what the animal does. Um, don't get try not to get bitten or kicked. It's there's it's and the same with boats. I've read fantasy particularly where boats do amazing things that boats don't do. And not well, because it's fantasy, it's because it's well, clearly with, with magic. Yeah, just doesn't I mean, know about boats. Right. But, it, you know, when there's magic, the boat can do things that no, it not magic normally boats. do. <laughs> Regular everyday boats that oh, just okay. do things boats are for. So. But anyway. Cool. So, all right. So now that we've talked about what half sorting is, now let's talk about what the book Half Sword is and what that's about. Okay. Well, the book Half Sword, the, the book Half Sword opens um, with the main character, Simon, um, who is, it's somewhat of a, uh, I guess a play on words that, you know, Simon as in Simple Simon, actually is, is Simon Prostoy, which Prostoy is, a, uh, is an old uh, um, Slavic word for simpleton or fool. Um, and the, uh, the half sword is a word play on half wit. Oh, I get it. That's clever. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, maybe being too for clever fun. for my own good or whatever, but it's, yeah. And I'm not sure. If, I think you would pick up on it with the, with the book. I think that's winking at the reader because like someone reading the book would be like, Oh, half sword, half wit. I see what you're doing there. But someone yeah. like, like who hadn't read it, who just saw it on the shelf would be like, why not a whole sword or a fiery sword? <laughs> like, like I asked <laughs> at the beginning. That's why I asked that. <laughs> okay. Well, and the half sword is, uh, is the, is also actually appears the sword itself appears in the book. So oh, awesome. it's a, it's, a uh, it's part of the, it's part of the story. And in fact, it's a, um, um, I, I don't know if it's quite a MacGuffin per se, but it is a, it persists throughout the story and it is the, and it is, it appeared in the beginning and it reappears to close the, close the plot line at the end. Ah. So it's a, it is a, an instrument within the story. Um, and it's, and so it's a broken sword. It's the. It's the um, the the hilt end, um, or as Simon would said, it is the end with a handle on it. Um, and so Simon carries the half sword and uh, and uh, goes at it that way. Cool. So, and what is Simon? What is he trying to do? What's his quest? Well, does he... he doesn't know in the beginning because um, he has been. Uh, as it is revealed rather early on, so it's not terribly a spoiler. He has been, um, you might say, cursed. He's been ensorcelled. He's he's had a he's had a a uh, he's had a a anathema um, 
put on him that makes him lose his wit. And so his journey is his journey of rediscovering who he was. And who he was isn't really who he wanted to be. So he discovers in the process that he is not, he is not, he did not come from the background of the good guys. Um, and, uh, And how he resolves that and how he decides he's going to move on is, is of course, part of the story. Should we meet him? You got a, an excerpt. Should we meet him? Do you have an excerpt for us? Sure, let's meet him. I'm going to read the first part of the first chapter. Go for it. And um, you can wave your arms and go stop, stop, stop. Anytime it starts to get um, like too carried on or something. And then we can skip later on. We can pick up either the rest of the first chapter or we can skip forward to one of his points of discovery and see what see what's happening there okay i'll leave that up to you which which you want to do so okay let's meet him (laughs) i'm gonna wave in the in the camera i'm gonna wave a cover of the book yay and why don't you describe it for listeners so that they know uh, yes yes okay so it is a picture of simon and simon is uh in 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 kind of in the background with some runes and the like and um he has uh and he has in front of him um he has uh amala who is his his uh paramour his, turns out to be his wife it, it, she's she's a very complicated person Sounds um, it. and i do love writing female characters i know Guys often write over sexualized female characters. I like a more complicated female character. I it just they're complicated is good. So Amala is very complicated. Um, so now I've switched my background to kind of a promotional background. Um, a lot of the action takes place in uh, um, in. I guess the uh, what's now the Austrian Alps, uh, um, northern Italian Alps. Um, oh, did I say it was historical fantasy? No, that that's an important thing to mention. Oh yes, it is, and I uh, that was yeah, that's my my oversight definitely because um, I write historical fantasy. I I really like. I don't know um, Umberto Eco. Uh, wrote Name of the Rose, uh, mm-hmm. was into a movie with Sean Connery. Terrific movie. Um, a lot of history, but a lot of fantasy too. I mean, because the the library at the monastery was, you know, definitely a fantasy element. Um, he wrote um, Baudolino, and Baudolino was a total fantasy journey into the medieval period. Um, the uh, uh, this, by the way, uh, half sword. Um, the the first chapter is the first chapter is is titled uh, uh, Anno Domini eleven eighty seven. So at the end of the twelfth century is when it is when it begins. Um, and uh, I try, well, try. I love to stay within the. It, within the magic systems and the belief systems of that 12th, 13th century period, because it wasn't just 
you know, it wasn't as simple as as we often think. They were the the Zohar had just come out of of uh, Kabbalistic magic. Um, a lot of the historical uh, magicians were practicing at the time. Um, so let's get into it. Let's let's sure. meet Simon. And like I say, if if we want to cut it off anywhere, we'll just skip forward to uh, a different part. Okay. So let's go. So, and I'm going to look aside here. Simon walked the rutted path alongside a great rotating wheel of oak staves and iron rim. Drawn by two stoic oxen, the high-sided cart rumbled along. The ox cart moved. The wheel rotated, and at his feet, the path remained as steadfast as ever from time immemorial. The road had always been a part of young Simon's life, or what little of it he remembered. The flower-bedecked fields, the profusion of birds, the high puppy clouds, any of these wonders would have fascinated most travelers. Not Simon. No, it was the dirty gray rag tied to one spoke that held his attention. Circling behind him, rising up, up above his head, it plunged to the earth at his feet, and that was the mystery. Simon dropped two paces behind and watched it again. I will catch it next time. The cart lurched forward. The wheel turned. The rag circled to the earth until that briefest of instants when it kissed the solid ground at a dead stop. Then up, up, and around again. How could something move forward by constantly stopping? Simon looked away, counting. Six, seven, eight. His eyes flew back to the errant rag. It rested against the ground as if it had never left. He trotted to the head of the laboring team, where an old man guided his animals. Master, what deviltry is it that allows a wheel to move forward while standing still? The old man didn't bother turning. He flicked the slender willow switch at the near office. Yesterday, you asked why a bird sings for all to hear, but will not allow itself to be seen. Simon began to speak, but his master had and the day before, you wanted to know if there was a place where rain fell upward that it might later descend on our heads. Simon held his tongue. He understood that he was being rebuked, but not why. Master Jacob knew so many things, he had explained so little. They rolled on in silence, crossing one boggy meadow after another. The sun broke from beneath, behind a bank of clouds as their path climbed from a muddy creek bed and passed beneath the lowering eave of a shadowy forest. Jacob switched the oxen. Run on ahead, boy, and find us a dry place to rest for the night. Snatching that scrap of liberty, Simon bounded up the path, his bony knees bobbing like a pair of feeding swallows. Beneath his feet, the slippery clay gave way to pebbles and clumps of grass. He passed a stand of twisted oak and thorny bush, Beyond, more trees bent their boughs overhead and cast a myriad of wavering shadows in the afternoon sun. Simon estimated he'd gone a thousand turns of the ox cart's wheel when he found a clearing. No water, but grass for grazing and a dry place to make camp. Downwind of where he knew his master would want the cart. He set a circle of stones and stack of twigs. Simon used his knife to scrape a dry stick and create a nest of shavings. Hurry, hurry, the team comes here soon. He fumbled the flint and steel from his cloak. Light fire, I can do this. 
By the time he heard the creak and rumble of wheels and oxen, Simon had a modest fire banked to the coals next to a stack of firewood. Their life on the road had followed the same pattern since leaving the Volga River port of Tver. Master Jacob guided the oxen and chose the road, while Simon attended to smaller matters, such as camp chores. The old man seldom spoke, and Simon usually contented himself with his own private musings. But now, with the light fading from the evening sky and their fire little more than glowing coals, he caught his master eyeing him where he sat. Simon touched one of the warm rocks. Why are there river-washed stones up here in the forest, while only mud and weeds grow down in the creeks? Perhaps it's time I ask some questions. His master shifted a little closer. Why is it that people call you Simon Frostoy, simple Simon? I am not smart like they are. I, do, I don't know much. You must know something. You can read, write, and count. You ask questions that would baffle a philosopher, a pack of philosophers. I don't want to baffle philosophers. Just sleep now. First, tell me who you were before I found you. Stop for a quick swig. That's not vodka, by the way. Simon poked their fire with a stick and watched the ensuing sparks glitter into the evening air. His chest burned every time the old man asked this question. Empty. He was hungry and cold and empty. You speak Latin like a priest. Your rags were once fine wool. You were somebody. I don't know a somebody. I just don't know. Simon dropped the stick and buried his head in his arms. They emptied me. They, who did this to you, Simon? I don't know. It hurt so much that he couldn't suppress the sob. Just leave me alone. In the darkness of his crossed arms, he didn't have to bear his master's gaze, didn't have to think. Simon waited. But no more questions came. He dozed off, huddled in a ball. Shivering awake, the fire gone to white ashes, Simon rummaged through the ox cart for his blankets and made a bed in the shelter of the cart's enormous wheels. The next day, they rumbled through a sparse forest where the path narrowed dwindled and vanished into a maze of stones and dead leaves. Master Jacob let him lead the oxen this time. Simon walked on their left and switched the near ox to let it know he was in charge. Tumberall, Master Jacob had called it, a big word for nothing more than a box on two wheels. Tum, tum, tumberall, Simon mumbled as he walked. On occasion, a row of saplings would bar their way. The tumbrel would creak to a halt. The oxen would snort and stamp the great splayed hooves. And Simon would drag out the rusting stump of a broken sword and hack a path through the new growth. The first time they stopped, he counted two generations of dead trees hewn to the ground. Simon vaguely recalled cutting them himself. Later that morning, they eased the team and their heavy cart down a steep hill only to find the way blocked once more. Simon dragged out the ancient blade and cleared a passage through the brush. Why is it, Master, that we don't stay on the main road to Krakow? 
All the other traders go that way. And all the other traders pay tolls and suffer the predation of robbers. In the centuries past, this was a Roman military route. My father showed it to me the long, the way long after others forgot. This takes us to Rome? It would if we didn't stop in Vienna. Wolf of Newsdorf, Simon chanted. We pay at the river. Oh, yes, we always pay the wolf. The old man picked up the willow switch and goaded his oxen forward. Simon marched along behind. Tum, tum, tumboro. At the bottom of the hill, they forded a shallow stream and climbed the opposite side. Simon pushed, the oxen strained, and slowly the heavy cart ascended the rough cut in the bank. They passed a ruined stone abutment. He remembered it from earlier journeys. But this time, Simon recognized it for what it was. A bridge was here. Indeed, a few timbers remained in my father's day, but it is nearly gone now. So this was a road. How did you find it every year? Just ahead, I'll show you. If I was a robber, I would wait right here for us to come. If you were a robber, you would starve waiting. No, they have too many opportunities on the road to waste time in this wilderness. Simon trudged on for a while before saying, What if robbers knew we had ermine and sable from the north? That's why we never go farther than Vienna. We pay our, our ferry tax to cross the Danube at Newsdorf. By the time we reach Vienna, the whole world will know what we carry. I would rather sell it there than chance the river or the road any farther. Now stop a moment. I'll show you something. Master Jacob indicated a polished white stone buried in the forest debris. Take a closer look at that. Simon knelt and dug away the leaves and rotting sticks. A square marble column emerged, perhaps two hands width on the side. It bore markings, numerals. 48, Master Jacob. Why does it say 48? 48 Roman miles to the old fort outside of Krakow. We will sleep within the city walls in less than three days. How did you know this was here? The Roman army left a stone every mile along their road. I knew we would come across one soon. Simon counted the turns of the great wheel as they walked. Over a span in diameter, it ate up eight paces, Four long strides, every time the tattered rag spun into the air and flopped against the ground. At 200 turns, he started watching. By 250, he became anxious. Simon searched the bushes and grassy clumps along the way. He gave up at 270, but kept counting. The great wheel turned 520 times before Simon spotted the white crown of another milestone poking through the ground. Almost at his feet, he bent to dig the hard rocks and clay from its face. When Simon looked up, the ox cart had disappeared over a low rise. He abandoned the project and ran to catch up with his master. Why did the Romans bury their markers? It was time that buried those markers, boy. Time and a thousand years of time and neglect. The entire next day, Simon played a game of looking for milestones. He saw five before they stopped that evening. The following day, he tried not to see them. Still, 15 pale white stones peeked out of the weeds and leaves as he passed. Master Jacob halted them early. Simon recognized the site as one he'd used before. 
The square marble, square marble column stood nearby. He read the inscription. Speed. Only 15 miles to Krakow. Why do we stop here? Would you prefer arriving at night when the gates are barred? There will be plenty of brigands outside waiting for just such fools. Simon grinned at his master and stirred a thick gruel of crushed oats and lard. I rather am eating inside eating sausages, but I can wait. The old man smiled back, stood, and returned shortly with a palm-sized block of brown material. Here, the last of our salted venison. Chop it up and stir it in. Tonight we feast. Simon built up the fire, added meat. He had to replenish the wood twice before the hard block of venison cooked down enough to eat. The old man gazed up at the ascending pillar of smoke, shook his head, and grunted about thieves. They ate as the darkness fell, and their fire burned to, a glittering, to, to glittering coals. Master Jacob slept in the ox cart as usual. Simon tried to sleep underneath, but the ground was littered with stones. Instead, he arranged his blankets behind a clump of trees where the soft grass and bracken grew thick. Dark dreams of fire and pain gave way to the sound of soft voices and bellowing oxen. Simon opened his eyes and tossed off the blankets. Visitors? He's about to step into the clearing when Master Jacob cried out. Shouts, blows, a cacophony of smashing and harsh laughter. Simon stood in the darkness, his heart compressed in fear. He should go to his master's aid. He, he wanted to do something, but his feet wouldn't move. Falling to a crouch, shivering, holding his knees, Simon closed his eyes and let the waves of terror bathe him in shame. He waited, unable to move. Then, after the cloak of and rattle, let me shut this bloody phone off. Maybe your characters are trying to call you. <laughs> Maybe Simon has something to say about this. Yes, yes, that's who it is. Okay. Yeah, enough of that. That was pretty. That was. I'm now being Simon Prostoy, <laughs> being simple about such things as mobile phones, turning them off. All right, let's try this again. Sure. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Where are we? Um, he waited, unable to move. After the clank and rattle of hearts, the rumble of wheels and the laughter faded away. Simon remained frozen, unwilling to see what waited in the clearing, clinging to the fantasy that he was still Master Jacob's helper and not the trembling coward who let his only friend die. Finally, the awakening birds, the growing light, and his aching muscles drove him to stand, drove him to step from the woods into the clearing. Stripped naked, Master Jacob laid, crumpled in a heap, his face bludgeoned to an unrecognizable mass. One of the intruders had emptied his bowels on the old man's back, and about all, their small possessions had been scattered like trash. Simon couldn't bear to look at the body. He retched on an empty stomach and shook in the gray dawn chill. Shredded blankets and trampled cooking gear, Simon poked about the ruined campsite. What little remain, food remained stank of the urine. Not far from the path, the hilt of Jacob's broken sword poked from beneath a cluster of leaves. Simon dragged it into the morning sunlight. About half the blade remained. 
slightly longer than his forearm. Fresh blood smeared his jagged stump. He pictured his master swinging it in the darkness, the last futile defense against the marauders. Marauders. Something he almost remembered. Something from long ago stood on the edge of his consciousness, then fled. The sword made a better shovel than it had a weapon. Simon spent most of that morning digging a shallow grave next to the milepost 15. He used the blade to lever cobbles and large stones from the hole. Standing almost to his knees, he scraped the dirt into, into mounds and scooped it out with his hands. When the rusty hilt had finally torn enough skin from his palms, Simon looked up and regarded what remained of his master. Bony and frail, the battered corpse bore little resemblance to the man he'd once known. Simon climbed from the grave and crept towards Jacob's body. With a scrap of torn blanket, he scraped off the mound of feces and cleaned the blood and filth from his master's wrinkled skin. Face up, Simon dragged him to the grave and buried him beneath a pile of earthen rocks. I need something, something more. A Latin phrase came unbidden to his lips. Requiem eternum done is domine. Simon couldn't remember where he'd learned it. Grant him eternal rest, Lord. Somehow, the word seemed fitting. His world spun, and Simon fell to his knees. Words spilled from his mouth like water from the lips of a drowned man. Deus ire, deus ire, sove seclum infavile. There was more. Simon clutched his breast breast and sobbed them out line after line. He had no idea why he knew these strange phrases and barely understood what they meant. Eventually, the fit passed. The boy stood at first now and now simply wept for the loss of his friend. Wow, that's quite, that's quite an introduction. <laughs> We could take it a little farther, or we could. Do you want to? Do you want to uh, talk a little bit more about the world? Because I don't. I don't know a lot about the 12th century, and I don't. Or the, yeah, or the actually. Well, yeah. 12th century, say. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's let's century. say that. Do do yeah. we? Do you want to talk a little bit about the history and and like what's going on in the world that sort of Simon finds himself in? And I I for one am curious about what because you're saying you're using the magic of that time. Like, what is the magic of that time? <laughs> and then I think we can come back to Simon after we have a little more of an understanding about like about that. I mean, what do you think? Yes, sir, sure. Let's do that. And uh, um, I'll just put this aside. Uh, the Byzantine era. Mm. And let's see, I'll put on my professor's hat here. No, I won't actually. Take off my professor's hat. There won't be a test after this. You can actually listen in relative safely, safety here. <laughs> um, the Byzantine era is one of my favorite eras in history uh, because... It featured this collision of cultures. Um, we have, we have, the, we have the Islamic tribes in what we call the Levant. I prefer call calling Western Asia, but we have the Islamic tribes 
pushing up into what is now Turkey, what was then called Anatolia. Um, the Roman Empire is governed out of Constantinople and not Rome. Rome has been destroyed by successions of invaders. It's really, um, it is pretty much a smoking ruin. The uh, Germanic tribes from the north are ruled by a succession of emperors who are called the Holy Roman Empire, emperors, because there was this succession from Constantinople. So you had the rule from Constantinople, you had the Holy Roman em em emperors who actually ruled, technically ruled the portion of the Italian peninsula, but were mostly Central Europe, um, not really what we consider Roman at all. And then there was Sicilians, and the Sicilians, the, the empire of Sicily, actually owned the or controlled the southern half of the of the Italian peninsula. So you have all these colliding cultures. You have the Moors that have invaded in up into what's now Spain um, and brought an Islamic push from that direction. Um, you and then right on the edge of everything we have the Mongolian nations that are pushing westward into, um, well, as far as the, as the Volga River now. So all of these competing forces in this world and the people there were so many different cultures, they all brought their own forms of magical belief, of magic. And there was Islamic magic. There was Judaic magic. There was the Zohar and the, the Kabbalistic magic um, that used the seal of Solomon and used the, all of the talismans. Um, and, of course, there were the, the northern magic systems that were uh, essentially sorcery um, that was called witchcraft, but it was generally a male, a male uh, practice. So... Um, it doesn't take much to, you know, wave a bit of a, a of a writer's wand mm. and make the magics real, make them happen. Instead of, um, well, who knows? Maybe then they did. Um, we the the magic in Half Sword concentrates on conjurations and talismanic magic. Um, talismans. Uh, appear throughout the story as a way of that people with the ability to wield talismanic magic tried to control their world. Oh, um, there is a so there is a there are two competing groups um, that I just made up. Um, one of them is the apostles apostles of light, and the apostles apostles of light. Um, a brother was doing a play on words with Lucifer. The I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, and, and, but the Apostles of Light was more um, named because they were promoting enlightenment. They were promoting knowledge in a time when the Catholic Church was trying to suppress knowledge. And so they were founded as philosophers and sorcerers and 
um, wise men of various sorts that were preserving knowledge. But in the time before, the time earlier, in the, say, early um, 12th century, they had fallen prey to the power of their own their own abilities. And so now they are in opposition to order instead of trying to preserve order. Um, there's another group, the weavers, and the weavers are um, are is a, a women's group um, that is trying to promote order not by controlling people but by controlling knowledge. So the weavers are essentially the internet of the 12th century. Um, they pass knowledge to kings and generals about perhaps something happening that they try to prevent plagues by telling the right people, telling merchants not to go to this area because they're having a plague. Um, so the weavers are the weavers are somewhat of a counter to the apostles. And then there's the third group that, that's in this book is the um, Knights of Palermo, which is the uh, uh, an ancient group um, that is was formed to as a as a, a group to help uh, people in trouble. That's, oh. um, so they were they were somewhat like the or, origination of the Templars that they, you know, they were there or the Hospitallers who were there to provide uh, pro to provide aid to a village that had been overrun by by marauders or whatever. So these three groups are the ones that that Simon is threading his way through. I see. Did he, um, so and, are we going to find out he belonged to one of them? We are. Well, but there's not. one he obviously can't belong to because he's the wrong gender. <laughs> Unless the spell swapped that too. <laughs> um, okay, so what we can do is we can read a little more on sure. this chapter where uh, Simon um, where Simon finds out a little something. Yeah, um, that sounds like fun. Or we can skip, or we can do both. If, you know, if everyone is just totally, you know, watching cat vids on YouTube right now, um, <laughs> we can uh, we can then skip forward and read a little bit more exciting chapter where Simon starts to use some of his knowledge. Um, so, I mean, yeah. Okay, so let's yeah. finish this one. Let's so, finish this one, and then and then you can give us, um, you know, help us so we know when we're where we're dropping into next. Um, okay. Okay. Cool. If there's any context we need. Okay, so we talked about. Let's see, we got him. Well, let's see, we got him here. We got all right. So he, he just buried. Uh, uh, Master Jacob, and um, he is, uh, he had just said a, you know, he, he recited something. Um, it was a, you know, it was a, a Catholic, uh, a Catholic uh, blessing for the, for the grave. He didn't know where it came from. Um, and then 
uh, he's now doesn't really know what to do. So we'll start again. It was the emptiness, the feeling of an utter abandonment that finally cut through Simon's grief. That and the emptiness in his belly. He rose from his master's cairn and surveyed the litter strewn about their campsite. He thought of planting the broken sword as a grave marker, but the Roman milestone served just as well. Wheel ruts and disturbed loam provided a clear trail, but Simon followed them and didn't look back. Most of that afternoon, he trudged after the ox cart, fear, fearing he would never catch up, well, hoping he didn't. Tucked into his belt, the broken sword thumped against his leg. Simon considered tossing it by the wayside, but it remained his one connection with Master Jacob. As the sun fell below the line of trees, Simon realized that he hadn't seen a milestone in some time. Shadows creeping from under thickets of brush obscured the Oscar, ox cart's passage. Daylight faded to, the, to evening's gloom, and Simon found himself blundering through a maze of pine branches and thorn bushes. Bolting in confusion, he realized night was coming, and he'd lost the trail. Master Jacob would come. Simon remembered that he buried his master. He thought of calling for help, but his imagination filled the dark woods with bandits and worse. He could sleep, but he'd left his bedding back at the old encampment. Simon crouched and hugged his knees. Quiet rustling. Small creatures pursued their own business in the leaves. Night jars flitted between the branches, cooing and churring. He remained still and listened for It wasn't wolves, but the shouts of men that roused him. The forest had gone dark, with only the barest gleam of moonlight shining between the trees. At first he cowered, afraid of being hunted, afraid of the jeering, shouting band that had murdered his master. Hunger and curiosity warred with fear, and eventually won. He crept towards the noises. Farther away than he thought, the shouts and sounds of fighting echoed through the woods like the cries of a lost phantom. Stumbling down a short slope, Simon brushed pine branches from his face and stopped at a broad clearing. There had been a fire. He could smell it now, though only coals were made. Across the clearing, Master Jacob's ponderous tumbrel stood limbed against the night sky and surrounded by dancing shadows. Drawn by the familiar silhouette, Simon took a few steps closer. A blow to his back drove him sprawling, face first onto the ground. A pair of knees crashed down on his ribs. A knife pressed against his neck, and a voice hissed, We kill spies. A northern dialect of the Vulgate, Simon barely understood. Spitting out his grass and dirt, he responded and laughed, I am Simon. That is my master's cart, the knife pressed harder. A rough hand clutched him by the hair and bent his head back. Where is your master? You know he is dead. You left him, and then I had to bury him. Why did you steal his cart? Are you a thief? The knife hand relaxed, and the weight came off Simon's ribs. Leave your sword and stand. It is only half a sword, and the, ha the handle half. And it was my master's, and I want to keep it. A few moments passed before Simon heard the man sigh and felt the knife leave his neck. 
Stand then, half-sword. I'm tired of killing tonight. My name is Simon, he pushed himself. I came with that cart, and I am very hungry. The shouting and commotion had, had fallen flat, and someone had rekindled the fire. Simon felt the other man sizing him. A grunt and a shove sent him stumbling toward the flickering light. Others had congregated around the makeshift camp. As the two approached, two of the men accosted him. Is that you, Simon? Yeah, I caught us a spy. I am not a spy, Simon. Understand their dialect, locked away perhaps in the lost halls of his memory. He says he is Simon Halfsword, owner of this hawk's cart. A shadowy figure approached, taller than Simon and broad through the shoulders. The man wore a short beard and an iron helmet. If you owned this ox cart, Halfsword, you would be dead by now. Stand near the fire that I might get a better look at. Simon was glad for the warmth and relieved that he wouldn't be killed by them. As he stood under the gaze of the two men, another pair approached, dragging a bloody corpse. Suddenly, two more arrived with their own grisly bird. Simon realized that the three other bodies lay in a heap nearby. Are you going to shit on their backs? But yeah. What? Simon tried to copy their odd dialect. Will you steal their clothing and foul them like you did my master? His captor, the one they called Johan, grabbed him by the collar. Do you mock us, boy? We did not kill your master. The taller man put a hand on Johan's shoulder. Easy, friend. I think I know what's happened to you. He looked at Simon. Who was your master? Master Jacob. He was killed, and that is his card. Four others had gathered while Simon spoke. They didn't gawk or jeer, but stood in watchful silence. The tall man said, Ramon, Luca, secure our horses and gear. He turned to Yo. Take Stefan and Carla, check our perimeter, and set a watch for tonight. We ride in the morning. Johan gave Simon an appraising glance before disappearing into the shadows. The others departed in silence. Simon waited while they If you didn't kill my master, then why did you kill these men? They were thieves, murderers, a pestilence investing, infesting this land. Then you infest this land too? Is that what you do? Infest? No, we cleanse. We... The tall man paused a minute, pushed his iron helmet to one side and scratched his head. My holy Freya, perhaps we do. Where are you from, Simon Halfsword? You speak church Latin. I come from the woods where knife man Johann found. Before that, do you remember? Now it was Simon's turn to scratch his head. We left Tavir. Now it is the woods and the cart, only the woods and the cart. I'm hungry. Do you have any food? When Johann returns, we will all take a small meal. You should rest. I will rest. Oh, yes, that will be good. Are you master of the cart now? I am called Cernak of Umbria, leader of this cohort, and yes, perhaps I am master of the cart. Rest, Simon Halfsword, and try not to ask so many questions. And that's the end of the first chapter. Oh, wow.
Do you want to talk about it a little bit uh, or you want to go into the next excerpt? Well, we can talk about it a little bit. Um, I'd ask you, Melinda, um, what is the impression you get of Simon? I mean, he's definitely simple, as you said, but he's definitely got hidden depth. So I'm definitely curious about where, what, what is, what his life was before they put that, uh, that ana anathema? An an anathema. It? Actually, anathema. It's, it's actually, I, uh, I misspoke. He has an anathema on him, but it is a nemesis that's causing his. Uh, oh, okay. His, all of them, you know, in story words to, to, to the extent of that meaning anyway. Um, so it's it's keeping him from knowing who he was. And it, it yeah, seems like he's lost everything. He doesn't know what anything is. Yeah. But oh he does God. know he does know high Latin. Now I threw in the term Vulgate, um, which is the Vulgate lang language that was sort of the universal language. Um, in later stories, I use the term trade Latin interchangeably with Vulgate. Um, it was used by traders and travelers as a universal language at the time. I of see. Of course, Constantinople spoke Latin at the time. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to, like, think of Latin as, like, a living language since now it's dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's why I didn't use too much of it. Um, I use it a bit as a, uh, you know, as where I need to make some, make emphasis. But I don't, I don't use much of it because... People don't see it as a living language, um, but it was in those was days, and, and that's and that's kind of like when when I heard the Vulgate, and I had to remind myself, I was like, yeah, there, there, Latin was a living language, and there was the you know different dialects, and like that's where it a lot of you know all the Romance languages, if you know, derived from there. So, and you know, a question for you, another question for you, Melinda, because obviously you you know you you're deep into the fantasy genre. And one of the things that fantasy features, sometimes in my mind too much, is in-story words. What's your feeling about in-story words that are either defined by context or defined by dialogue or, or predefined by the author for that matter? Does it break up your reading or does it uh, kind of enhance the world building? Like, so I, as a reader, like if it's like sprinkled around, like I kind of like it because it gives you sort of the flavor of things. Like I go out like what, like going back to like some of my favorite, like in world sayings and things is like the, you know, in the Lord of the Rings and in a lot of Tolkien stuff, there is it's sprinkled throughout and it's kind of nice. And, and as I especially like it when the characters don't actually, they encounter and they don't know what it means or they have some idea or they find out they're wrong about it. Um, so like, like there's a, like one of my favorites is I think from the Lord of the Rings. I forget what I can't, I can't do the Elvish thing, but it's like, it's somebody, I don't remember if it was Aragorn or like Legolas who said the thing and, and the hobbits are like, well, what is that? <laughs> Obviously in more flowery language than, but basically like they were like, can you tell us about that? And then, you know, we had this little bit of this fun little discursus um, where they, they told, you know, there was like a poem or something. And it was kind of fun because you got this glimpse into like other aspects of their worlds, not associated with the quest, with the war, with Sauron, that, that this, that there's just deep history that, that you just don't know about. And you, aren't going to be able to know about because it doesn't fit into this narrative, but it exists and it's underlying it and it's affecting them and their views. And um, 
you know, their prejudices, um, which I, I thought was sort of fascinating. In my own fantasy, like I only do like a few little things here and there. Um, and usually the characters have no idea what it means either. And they're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> this is weird. We'll maybe we'll find out what this is someday. If we don't, I'm not gonna care. <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> you must be familiar with we the Wheel of Time series. At I least read up to book eight. I didn't like. Yeah. I didn't like anything after book four, and I refused to read the rest. And I'm sorry, Brandon Sanderson. I'm sure you did a fabulous, amazing job, but I can't. Well, it, was, it was Robert Jordan that started the series. Yes, uh, Anderson finished it, but uh, um, that was. A I case can't forgive it. Robert for pages and pages of description about grass. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just can't. Yes. And the hair tugging and, and the way he wrote women. I just, I, I cannot excuse you for that, Robert. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, but he also introduced so many in-story words. Yes. I really like the stories. I actually covered to covered every one of the, what, 14 volumes or whatever. Oh, God. People are doorstoppers. But um, I, I like the stories, but the in-story words every time would throw me out. I had no idea what he was talking about. Oh, and of so, course. Um, uh, I try to, like you say, they they give flavor, but I try to keep them um, at least, hopefully, uh, hopefully keep, give them meaning through context, if nothing else. So, um, but that's interesting to hear your your reaction because uh, it's hard to tell. I think everyone's tolerance for that sort of thing is is. Uh, is greater or lesser um the uh you know one of the things uh, in this story that occurs early on and i will share a pick here if i can push the right buttons um what you see behind me of course is the is a, a cover oh you have the Oh, you, that's right. I was going to say, I thought you were going to talk about your library shelves. And I was going to like, oh, we can't see those. Well, you, can you don't really need to see that. Yeah, um, no, no. Never mind that. I'm sorry. I thought you were going in a different direction with that comment. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Um, so what, no, what I, this, what you're seeing there is, is uh, a blank uh, full wrap cover that I gotten from my uh, cover designer. Um, and I use it, I use it for various promotional posts and that sort of thing. Um, I wanted to share, let's see. Let's talk about this one. Sure. Oh, yeah, I saw that earlier when we were yeah, chatting I, before. I that to you earlier. Um, this is this is actually the Wawel Dragon. It is the um, it was uh, uh, presumed to be below the ca Wobble Castle in Krakow. Um, and actually, the, the story of the Wobble Dragon um, is, is actually knitted in with a name because Krakus was the presumably the guy that slew the Wobble Dragon, gave the city its name. And today, if you go to, uh, if you go to Krakow, you can tour the Wawel Dragons, the Smokma Jama um, Wawel Dragons Cave. Oh. Um, so it's just an interesting, that's an interesting tie-in, at least interesting to me, tie-in between history, which had a direct impact on, on the region, 
and legend and fantasy because they were looking at uh, what people actually thought was a real dragon. And uh, it ate sheep, obviously. And as you can see, now I'll move the other direction here, and you can see the farm boy that is fleeing in, in fear of his life while the Wawel dragon comes out. And that is uh, Wawel Castle, the outer walls, and uh, that what actually was Krakow at, the, at that time. So um, just wanted to show that off as a, uh, as a, uh, uh, as a, an instance where history in historical fantasy can be wrapped into a fantasy story and keep it fantasy without having to build an entirely new world. You can use the history. And there's much, much more of that in mm -hmm. actually historical. It's actually, you know, at one time was considered part of the historical record. Um, that can be integrated into into stories and still you know preserve both fantasy and as historical background um so is simon gonna run into the dragon on <laughs> the way to crack indirectly because by the time simon showed up the dragon had been dead for maybe oh. two or three hundred years but that That's doesn't sad. keep it from figuring as a major part of the story um oh the spirit of the oh, dragon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> That's fun. And so let's let's stay in that vein. I, I mean, one thing I do like doing, I hate to say it, is I like doing the research. You probably couldn't have figured that. I did. Um, so here is in in the background, and again, I'll try to get my big head out of the way. Um, in the in the background is uh, that's the that's Krakow. Uh, uh, that is the Wawel Castle. This is I've superimposed on this on this drawing. I've superimposed the the old the old uh, cathedral of uh, Wawel Cathedral. That and you can visit that now too. Um, it's been rebuilt and expanded a couple of times. They actually have dragon bones hanging in the cathedral. Um, so could you explain the map for those who are just listening who can't see it? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yep, I'm That's looking okay. at it. So, uh, it's, it's a walled, medieval walled castle, as you might normally expect in just about any map. But um, uh, to the on the right-hand side, which is the eastern side, it has where the Voivoda, who was the, like the... Uh, Duke or the Prince of Krakow, um, where he, his residence and where the soldiers live. And to the west, to the left, is the uh, is the castle grounds, exercise grounds, commons, and so forth. And on the north is the um, is the rather ancient cathedral that is still there. Um, still, go see the dragon bones. And then, and which, and I put a planned view of it. If you can't, I won't go through all the little chambers in the cathedral, but it has a pretty much central hall with an apse at the east end, and that's 90% of it. Um, what I did show here, and if you are watching the video, you can see that we have 
the, the this dark area. And the dark area is where I took a recent uh, speleological map of the dragon's den, the smock majama, and superimposed it on the castle. Um, did I tell you I'm a history nerd? Yeah, <laughs> probably didn't know that, but I'll tell you that about myself. Um, and also a, a spelunker at times. Um, so I was really absolutely fascinated by the fact they they what they called pushed the cave that is they they uh opened new passages in the cave nobody knew knew existed and explored further underneath the wobble castle um the have you been there have no one of those bucket list things you know ah. um, i've been in the region um i certainly have been uh you know, in East, spent time in various parts of Eastern Europe, not Krakow. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to go see it. Um, in in Half Sword, I just allowed the uh, the cave to go all the way underneath the cathedral. You know, just the extra passages in the cave, and they could. You just don't know. Um, they may have not opened up the uh other matter of fact i i would be willing to bet they were not able to access all the passages um but yeah that's that's uh that goes into the whole bit of the dragon and and simon discovers some interesting things there that he needed to know about himself that, um are connected with the dragon is that in the next excerpt you're going to read for us um, it is, uh, but that section is pretty long. I think um, I will leave it to readers to go explore the smock majama themselves um, and uh, find out what Simon found. Uh, one thing, shoot, let me go. No, I'm not going to bring it up. I'll just okay. read, figure it out. Um, <laughs> So that's that, but that episode when they reach Krakow, the the group, by the way, the group that he connected with with Johan, um, is the is a cohort of this Knights of Glamour. Ah. So, and which is quickly, it's not a big reveal. It's you know, it's quickly quickly known that they're, they're the, uh, um, it's a. Uh, particular you know it's, it's a part of them they're patrolling central europe um again um relieving towns that have been beset by bandits and militaries, doing that sort of thing so uh simon connects with the uh, he connects with this cohort with these knights of palermo and of course being a um you know being very impulsive, Simon wants to be a knight. Make me a knight of Palermo, and he has reasons for it, and he has, and they have reasons to say yes. So, in the next section, Simon has to undergo three trials. Um, he has to undergo, he has to undergo. Let's see, the um, the he has to undergo the three trials. He has to undergo Chapel Perilous. The 
the lair of the beast and the waters of redemption. And so the next three chapters are Simon going through three trials to become a knight of Palermo and what he learns about himself in each of the three. So, and it was quite, uh, the three trials actually fairly, you know, as part of the the literature of the time. It's, it's you know, it's, uh, if you look at like the, uh, Arthurian legends and that sort of thing. There were always the three trials. And so even Monty Python and the Holy Grail had <laughs> what is the airspeed of a swallow? A European swallow or an African swallow? Oh, I don't know. Ah! You, you remember the sequence. Yeah, I do remember the sequence. My favorite sequence. Um, anyway, sorry, I digress. That's okay. What? What else should we talk about, Melinda? So, all right. So, where is the series going? So, is this is book one? Is book two out? Is book two being written? Is oh, book two ready to go and and just waiting for you to press the the, the release button when when the final edits are done? Where are we at with that? <laughs> this is a good question. Um, the book two. There were originally a series of three books, uh, in t all told. Uh, uh, for about 450,000 words. So wow. three fairly decent sized books. Um, they were written in the, oh, they were written between 2013 and say 20, I want to say 2018. Um, and what happened, what happened then is there was a, there was a, a program opened up by Amazon called Kindle Worlds. And I don't know if you remember it or if you're even... I remember it. I didn't really pay much attention to it at the time. Okay. But well, the, the idea is it was supposed to be rather like fanfic, um, but uh, legitimized. Uh, in other words... Uh, like shared worlds? Pardon? Like shared worlds? Sort of, yes, like a yeah. shared world, right, where, where um, the well-known authors were uh, uh, would allow people to legitimately write into their series and actually get paid, get split the uh, split the sales. So um, there was a, a series called the Mongoliad that was uh, written by a group of people, but but headed by Neil Stevenson. So, and he wrote um, he wrote a lot of semi-historical fantasy. Uh, uh, is probably Snow Crash was his first one, which he mm. Neil Stevenson wrote. I read that a lot of genres, science fiction. Um, he wrote the. Uh, I'm trying to think of the of probably his. One of his best fantasies was um, um, Diamond Age. Pardon? Was oh, Diamond Age. Age. I read that one. Yes. Yeah, that was good. Um, um, no, I'm thinking of the uh, of the one that actually took place during the Reformation. Um, oh, uh, the name escapes me. There were three three books. Yeah, name obviously escapes me. Um, I have, I'm also suffering 
from this theft of my memory. But uh, I've just, uh, yeah. anyway. he's just written a well, lot of books. It's hard to keep track of them all. And, and, and having read a lot of books, you know, it's, yeah. uh, uh, so he was the headliner on that. And I wrote these stories into that. Um, actually, I wrote a prequel to the uh, to the series that he was headliner on, and they they did real well. I was, you know, really happy with it. And I had put out I was a I had put out a um, I put out a, a novella that kind of closed the gap between the end of my prequel and the beginning of his series, and I was ready to move on. And then. Uh, uh, Mama Amazon just pulled the plug on the whole program and oh. everything came off. The rights reverted. So I got to keep the rights to my stories as long as I didn't use any of the characters or situations from the host author. So I have out there somewhere um, a an entire series that I can't use the way it is but I'm rewriting. Oh, so, I see. And also that one was focused, um, the one, the, the Mongoliad was focused on the European knights trying to uh, stave off the Mongolian invasion. Oh. Um, and it focused a lot more on swordsmanship. It was a lot more of a swords and not much sorcery. It was, you know, it was more of, in fact, they had originally had in mind a, a companion video game called the Clang that was about medieval sword fighting. And a couple of the co-authors were, did the HEMA, historical European uh, martial arts. Uh, so it was a lot more about sword fighting um, than about fantasy. Mm. Uh, what I wrote at the time was a lot more about fantasy. I, I, I put in the talismans and all the creatures and everything. And so, um, but it was good. It was real good. And then I couldn't use it. So, yes. Wow. So, so you're working on, uh, taking the things out of those stories that you can't use and bringing them into some, into your own Honestly, historical fantasy world. Right. And it wasn't my first it wasn't my first uh, attempt at novels. I'd, I'd written some novels for online audiences that were mostly uh, like serialized for online audiences. And I went back through them the other day. They aren't terribly, terribly dreadful, but they're, you know, they're first novel kind of put in the trunk sort of things. Um, the stories I wrote, which which I called at that time, I called it the Red Messenger. Um, they were pretty good. Okay, not too bad. Um, there were some sequences in there that were quite dreadful. Um, <laughs> just standpoint of Pull out your red pen. Yeah, they were red. There's a lot of red pen areas in there, which, um, so I'm having to refocus the whole storyline on um, a different conflict than the Mongol invasion. So it's going to be more the conflict between the three-way conflict between the uh, the apostles of light, the the weavers, and, um, and these knights of Palermo. I see. So, so Simon K. 
came out of that Kindle shared world and now you're having to rework all the material that you did for that and weave it now into Simon's story, which it's interesting. Right. right. And the, he was a, he was actually a supporting character in the Kindle world story. And what I did is uh, when I wrote half sword, I wrote that as his, uh, it was his uh, um, backstory basically I see. where Simon came from and how he came to be who he was. So he will appear in the following, you know, in the subsequent stories. Um, and he will be, uh, you know, he's a good supporting character. Um, and uh, so I'm working diligently on that bunch. Um, Do you have a uh, estimate, like an estimate for when somebody should because people can listen to these or watch these at any time it could be a month from now a year from now if you have right. any like like in 20 in, at some point in 2024 should is there should if they're at that point in the calendar should they be looking for the sequel i am going to um be very unhappy with myself if it's not out in time for the for uh uh by June or July of 24. Okay, so that's book two. That's book two, yeah. And book two is probably the most difficult. Um, I've parsed out, I've, I've reordered the books, and parsed out the stories, that, that parsed out the different chapters. And um, so I'm rather playing musical chairs with chapters. And uh, That's hard who, though. That's hard oh, when you're taking something that was written for something else and you have to rip out certain things and then see, is there enough left that I can do something with it? Now I got to change it to fit where I now have to go. Cause I can't, this can't go where it, that's hard. That's a really hard challenge. It was almost easier writing half sword from scratch than it has been re <clears throat> reconfiguring the other books, um, which I didn't realize until I had started. Um, but it's going okay. It's going okay. It's just I, there's some, and I'm working right now on some of my earliest work, which going back through it, it was nowhere near as polished as the later stuff, obviously. Right. So um, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not too worried about the time. I'm pretty sure by mid spring, um, I will get it professionally edited. And obviously I get professional covers done. So, you know, I want it to be a book that a person could read, buy, and not feel like they're, you know, like they're, they're reading an amateur, you know, a, a poorly produced book. Um, so it may take a few months to get the editing done and get it polished up and ready for to be published. Um, I'm trying for early summer of next year. Um, there's a group out, um, you're, you're part of it, the, uh, uh, oh. indie fantasy yeah. addicts in Facebook. Ah, the, the indie so, fantasy addicts or is this? And also authors of IFA. Yeah. Yes. And, and so I want to be, I, uh, my goal is to be, have it out in time for the summer reading challenge in the IFA. Um, I entered year. naively as a, you know, just 
kind of trying it out, I entered Half Sword in the um, in Spiffbo, uh, 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 self-published fantasy blog. Yes, I entered yeah. one of my books this past year too. So uh, I'm still in. Yeah. Pardon? So far, I'm still in. <laughs> you still in? Yeah. Well, he's going. He's going through his batch rather slowly, though. So I don't. That's the only. I don't know. You know who's going to be his semifinalist uh, or it finalist? You're still yeah, in. I'm still in. I was thrown out first round. Oh. Thrown out. Just pow out. Get out of here. Oh now, no. Yeah. Um. And people who'd read the book liked it, but um. But I do know what the deal is. Yeah. It all depends on who your blogger reviewer is, who you get. Who'd you get? I don't even remember. It was <laughs> they they ignored the whole program until late July when everyone else had their first cut. And they, you know, everyone else was in, you know, a second round or third round even. And they didn't even, they said nothing. And then finally in July, they just threw out, you know, three quarters of the books, said, no, oh. these are. And so I know, you know what happened. I mean, I expected at least to make the first cut. I, but, I mean, I, at this point, I'm not sure if the blogger that I have is going to finish the first cut by like next year. Cause it's like once a month, he's doing a cut. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're still in, Good for you. Um, but it all depends on who you get and what their taste is. Um, they didn't think there was enough fantasy. Um, I got, they mine is like a professor, so <laughs> I think. I'm sorry? Mine is a professor, I think. Oh, um, really? Okay, hmm. well, depends on what their taste is. Uh, I don't think they read as far as the, uh, as the uh, chapel, you know, the chapel perilous section but yeah um, they it seems like from what i've been hearing from just what I, the impression that i've got is like they read the first chapter and yeah. if they like that they'll read the next bit and but you know and then if it just isn't jiving like they may or may not read any further um so mine is very mad i mean Eat my main character is a mage, so there's like magic on page one, <laughs> and that's yes. what I it's very magical. Melinda, I'm not going to change my style to suit what. Uh, well, you, you didn't know, you know, you, and it's all it, luck of the draw. It is luck of the draw, uh, but what I'm saying is, I'm going to write, yeah, what I think readers would enjoy. If I force myself to put a dragon on the first page. Um, no one would like it the way I wrote it because I'd have I to mean, kill it. Depends. It depends. You know, you might find a book where it makes sense for the dragon to be on the front, the first page because they're, you know, chasing somebody, well, yeah, telling yeah. somebody a story. Like you, I, let's not rule that out because you may have some, you may have some wild idea where it does work historically in, in your historical it, it, fantasy setting. Let's I not say no. Let's not rule that out right now. <laughs> Right, I wouldn't rule it out for another author, not at not at all. Um, but and maybe for other readers, they might. That's maybe that's what they like. That's totally cool. Mm. Uh, but I would draw your attention to you. You brought up Tolkien. 
And how does he open the Hobbit? Mm. He opens, a Hobbit lived in a, in hole. a hole. Now, not how a, can you start not a, a nasty, dirty, smelly hole? But I, I can't remember the rest of the line. With but, the ends uh, of worms and yada yada yada. Yeah. yeah, no, no, exactly. So it was it was a cute opening. But no dragons. I mean, there was a dragon. I mean, they did go. They did eventually have to deal with a dragon. <laughs> I mean, Smog was very much present in the Hobbit. And he made his presence known. <laughs> yes, yes. But all I'm saying is, you probably couldn't get it. They, uh, the Spiffbo would have probably tossed that one because they read the first chapter and there was no dragon. So out. <laughs> Uh, and that I mean that one was then there was the dwarves and the wizard and I don't know I mean I, I think it depends on the reviewer um, but definitely the Lord of the Rings like the Fellowship of the Ring like would have been thrown out immediately because it's very slow it begins very slowly very slow yes it does with uh, kind of Frodo's backstory developing very very yes. slowly but, but then you know it gets crazy yeah. later and it just gets crazier and doesn't stop yeah yeah. Um, yeah. And also, I think the Wheel of Time, that first book would have been thrown out because like literally not much. They're wandering around for 75 percent of the book and like literally nothing magical happens until like the very end. <laughs> like they're in a fantasy world, but there's no fantasy. They're, it's a travel log. They're just roaming around, going to different places. Yep. Yep. Um which brings to mind another point I'd like to make, and, and maybe for the benefit of readers in particular, um, is the impact that uh, Kindle Unlimited has had on writing style. And you see, if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can download a book, read two or three chapters or pages or even paragraphs and go, meh. Cost it costs you nothing. Uh, download another book. Try it again. So if you're writing with the idea in mind of Kindle Unlimited, you have to grab the reader by the neck in the mm -hmm. first three paragraphs. Because if you don't, they're going to just go on to the next one. But it's and like that with everything, though. I mean, I don't write for Kindle Unlimited. My books are not part of that. Um, I write for a wider audience, but you right. still need to grab the reader in the very beginning uh, because every retailer, whether you're looking at Apple or Google Play or Kobo or Barnes and Noble, all of them, you can see a preview and, you know, which is the first 10 percent of the book. Since my books are long, that tends to be a lot of chapters. But, um, but someone's not going to read that entire preview if they don't, if the first, you know, couple of chapters, if the first sentence in the first few paragraphs don't like interest them or um, hook them, as authors like to say, or, you know, they don't fall in love with that character and be like, oh, I want to know what happens to them. <laughs> well, then I would ask you, um, at, say you read the full first chapter. I mean, or half, or the first half of the first chapter of Half Sword, would you be connected enough to uh, Simon to want to read more about him? I mean, I was definitely curious about like, but like, I think don't I think I had. I you had already said that he, this is not who he is. This is something that happened to him. So I went into it already expecting that this was he wasn't going to stay this way. That there was going to be changes. But um, I don't always read the blurbs. 
before I look at the inside of the book, I'm like, oh, that's an interesting cover. Oh, it's fantasy. Let's check out the, the preview. If I had just done that without knowing, I may not have because he's very simple. Um, if but without knowing that he had that this was something that's going to fade away, it would okay. it would be tr it'd be hard to connect with that. Um, uh huh. Because it, 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 yeah, I wouldn't. You there's nothing in the first chapter that really, other than like the very end where he mentions the Latin, that like and 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 not knowing a lot about the 12th century until like someone else pointed that out. Like until so you pointed that out, like I would not have realized that that's not something that you would not have known were he that actually that simple. Okay. Um, so maybe a little too subtle. I've never been accused of that before. <laughs> <laughs> um really but it's um, hard because like i'm not i'm not like approaching it as a reader who doesn't know anything about it because we've been talking about it for the last almost hours yeah. and a half so yeah. i have i know that there's more coming so i'm curious about yeah. how he ended up this way and that is like overriding everything else <laughs> what i'm doing with the next two books in this group is i'm making all three um half sword in the next two to be standalone. If you don't happen to have read Half Sword, you could read any of the other two and get a good story out. Oh, that's neat. And then the third one will bring the three stories together. So, um, and I'm listening to what you say. Um, I'm probably going to put more of a, a stronger hook in the first part of the next story, which um, I'm playing with the title Fire and Iron. You know, you know what would have been neat in Half Sword if before chapter one, there was like this flashback thing of who he was before and you saw some, you know, some bit of what happened and and like and he didn't know in that thing what the heck was happening. And then it's all being like everything like that would have like hooked people from minute one because you're seeing him before it happened and okay. it's happening and he doesn't know quite what's going on. And, and that that simplification and then that loss, and now he's got to get it all back. That's what I would have done if I was writing this. Okay, interesting thought. Um, and yeah, I, I like using those flash flashbacks to open a chapter, you know, kind of jump you into the action and yes. then tell how he got that messed up. Um, because that I, hooks you. Then you're like, wait, because that, that's something thrillers do a lot. They show you something from later in the book, and then they and start then, out somewhere, you know, that you're like, and, and so you're immediately like wondering, wait, how did we get from there to here? And the whole book, you're trying to figure this out. So like they can start with a banal, boring beginning because you already know this is going somewhere crazy. You know, you've seen the crazy and you want to know how did we get there? What, who is this? Because they often don't tell you who that, like you, you often don't get the name of the character or whose point of view it is. So you don't know if that was the character you're in in chapter one's head or the villain's head that like you just, you don't know sometimes. Right. And and right. that can keep you guessing. And I think that would have worked really nicely for half sword. It probably what is what I should have done, but what it could have should have, you know? Um, and then you could have got the magic in and then the spiff up you and I'm like, huh, how do we get I from write, here to there? I've been writing action adventure with, mm. Um, David Wood. I've been co-authoring with David Wood. Um, I connected with him uh, actually during the Kindle World days, and we just uh, I just kept writing with him after they pulled Kindle World down after I had just started writing with him. Um, 
Uh, so I've got three out with David Wood that are more action adventure, but um, I put more fantasy into them than uh, um, so like Mog, which is the first one in the group. I've got ancient Lemuria in there. Um, so, um, but I do that a lot in in those books, and um, yeah, I really like using that. So I'm gonna I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm going to see how I can work that into my subsequent. Uh, subsequent books uh i would but, i would go back and because you can that's the beauty of like being an indie author you can go back and make changes right, right, um, <laughs> you know I, and because because yeah. i feel yeah. like it's it's such a it's you've got such a cool like world that you've got going on and like simon's got an interesting journey and like something that could clue the reader in sooner especially if it, it's in ku like i don't know if people always read the blurs because they don't have to they can take the book and read it and and decide oh this is not for me and send it back or um continue they don't really have to read the blurbs so um and i just think that could be like I think that could be cool to like give them that insight that like something traumatic happened. <laughs> he is not like this because that is who he is. He's not going to stay this way. Cause I, I really think you, you need to give someone the strong impression from page one that this is not how he's supposed to be. He's not going to stay this way. You know, that there is a, he's, he's on a quest to get back to what you saw in the thing. Like that's what I would have done because uh, it's just so that like people don't like lose patience with him. Instead, they they empathize with him. Like, oh my God, he had such a loss, and now he's struggling. You know, instead of seeing him as being simple, they'll see him as somebody who is reduced by something out of their control, and they're trying to figure things out, and they do not have the ability to because they're being magically prevented from doing it. Like that set mm -hmm. that sets up a whole different like reader experience versus the one that we have now. Um, and I think that could be a really like powerful change for the book. I don't think it would yeah, take much to yes, even get that I in agree. there. I agree. I, I think I probably will be retconning a lot of details in, <clears throat> pardon me, after I've uh, at least finished the second one, just to mm. kind of make sure they tie together. Yeah. <clears throat> would yeah, you... and hey, hey Tolkien retcon things. So, you know, if, if the man who invented that everybody claims invented fantasy can do it, then hell, we we need to do that. That's part of being a fantasy author. <laughs> That's a tool in your tool belt. <laughs> um, would you like me to read a more fantasy? Sure. Uh, are you good? Are we still good with time yeah. and all that? Yeah, yeah. I can't go past two hours, but yeah, so we've got another 30 minutes we can chat. Let me see if I can uh, find this uh, section that, uh, let's see here. All right. Um, we're going to kind of split two chapters. Uh, okay. Uh, Simon has has grown up, so to speak. Uh, he's acquired his will he's learned to use a little bit he knew how to use talismans he finds he was um and, and so he has he has a few talismans that he didn't make but he has the idea how to use them um he finds himself accidentally married to amala mm -hmm. um has met a lot of other people this is about two-thirds of the way through the book um, it's where everything starts to come into a head. Um, oh, okay. Um, he loves Amala, and he doesn't realize she has been in his life um, for longer than he knew. Um, so they are uh, they are are 
going towards Rome because he is going to confront his his persecutors. Mm. Um, Amala is going with him. They have two horses, um, and they are riding south towards mm -hmm. towards Rome. Um, and they've been ambushed by a group of marauders that that live in this valley that ambush anyone that tries to cross the river. Um, so uh, uh, I'll start here. Um, they've reached the river. He knows there's there are people there. He's been forewarned, but they know they have to cross. So as he'd hoped, the river had spread into a maze of shallow channels. Just downstream, he heard the hiss and grumble of cascading water. Almost halfway across, the barking started. This time, Simon was sure it came from behind. He pushed himself faster. Another step, and he plunged into a deep pool. Gripping the reins with both hands, he managed to pull himself back. Turning upstream, Simon pushed his way through waist-deep water, loose rocks tumbling beneath his feet. He managed to reach the other side and climb the bank. Dogs barked. Simon smelled the fire before he saw them, torches, flickering as they moved through the grass. He tossed Epona, the horse, the Epona's reins to Amala and remounted Perrin, his own horse. Let's go. The dogs had reached them. The dogs reached them first. Perrin dispatched their leader with a swift kick to the head. The others hung back, barking like devils. The men with torches ran faster than Simon dared push his horse in the dark. We're not going to make it. Ride for the trees. We'll face them there. Closer than he thought, the trees sheltered them from, from the moon's cold light. Simon was tempted to keep riding, but knew the dogs would follow wherever they went. Staying just beyond Perrin's hooves, three shadows jumped and snarled in the darkness. Dismounting, he symbols, signaled Amala to do the same. Before she could move, an arrow came whistling out of the field. The girl cried as she fell. A second arrow struck Epona, sending the horse into a screaming frenzy, running and bucking. Two of the dogs gave chase, but the third lunged at Amala. It descended on her fallen body just as Simon's knife opened its throat. The torches approached, three in all, two from the west and one rushing up from the east. Another arrow hissed past Simon's ear. He dropped to the ground. Perrin shied back, snorting and grunting. Two more arrows flew. The horse shrieked and reared. A third arrow caught him full in the chest. Perrin fell like a collapsing tower. Knife sheathed, Simon crawled toward the approaching torches. At least three, probably more. Six? It didn't matter. They drew within five spans. Simon lay flat against the ground, motionless, knife in hand. Footfalls, heavy breathing, a pair of boots churned through the deep grass. Simon rose from the shadows and jammed his knife into the man's knee. A slash across the throat quieted his screams. A torch appeared. Simon dropped and spun away from the, from the short axe that struck the ground. Next spin, he knocked the legs from beneath the man and jammed his dagger into his heart. I will say that his Simon's time with the uh, Knights of Palermo was not wasted on simply eating sausages. Um, and Luca, who is probably one of my favorite characters in the story, taught Simon knife fighting and dirty fighting and all kinds of stuff. So anyway, um, 
springing to his feet, the torch in one hand, the axe in the other, he faced a bowman, drawing on him as from ten paces off. Simon threw the torch as the arrow hissed past his ear. He rushed the bowman and buried his axe in the man's neck. Snatching up the torch, he slammed it across his opponent's face. Others came. It didn't take long. Two more ran up, weapons in hand, only to fall to Simon's knife. A third raised his bow, but one glimpse of Simon's looming figure sent him fleeing. Simon caught him within a few paces. He sheathed his knife and threw the man to the ground before beating him to, into a lifeless rag. One more torch somewhere. Simon wiped the splattered blood from his eyes and stared about. He spied it off towards the woods, guttering as it waved above the grass. Amala, the devil! Simon ran, heedless of brush and rocks. He tripped and rolled and kept running, close, too close to where she lay. He howled in frustration. The, the torch stopped moving. Simon redoubled his speed. A dark figure turned to face him, torch in hand. The light glittered off a weapon. Simon didn't care. He ran up, deflecting the sword, sword strike with his dagger and following through with a blow to the throat. Simon ducked too late to avoid the swinging torch. It went. He went down, his face in agony. The sword returned, pinning his cloak to the ground. He let the boot descend on his right shoulder. Something cracked. Ignoring the pain, Simon whipped his dagger around and slashed the exposed tendon. Cursing, the man dropped his torch, stumbled and fell. Simon pulled free, free of his cloak and jammed his dagger into the man's ribs. Standing, panting, he swung about. More. There had to be more. Nothing moved. Huts. Burn everyone. Slash every throat. Simon pulled the sword from his cloak and swung it back and forth. Every throat, man, woman, infant, they all die tonight. A soft voice in the darkness cried, Simon, like a wet garment, the battle rage fell away. In its place, pain, fatigue, and sudden fear. He snatched up the torch and staggered to the forest edge. Perrin lay in a heap where he had died. Only an arm's length away, Simon found Amala shivering in the ground, guttering, nearly exhausted. The torch shed just enough light to see the arrow shaft protruding from her cloak. He leaned closer. The arrow had embedded itself just above her right breast. Rapid breaths, it was panting. Amala rolled her eyes up at her. I die now. He touched her face. No, not tonight. I won't let you. Simon cut her cloak from around the arrow and peeled it back. Beneath, she wore a vest and light blouse. He cut those away as well, and bared her white chest to the moon. An arm's length of shaft protruded from a bloody gash in her breast. He bent low and put his face next to hers. I need to roll you on your side. You must be strong for, for us. Simon didn't wait for her nod. He took her arm and hip, and ignoring her cries, he couldn't ignore the screaming pain in his shoulder, but he rolled her up on her left side and ran a hand over her back. Nothing. Oh, God, help me. I need Ramon. I need Aluna. The point had not gone through, but was so deeply embedded, Simon knew it would kill her to pull it out. Simon rolled Amala back and rubbed his face. I can't do it. He imagined carrying her, sprinting across the mountains back to Baba Jasnika. He thought of healers somewhere in the scatter of lighted huts, taunting him. 
But as the torch flickered and burned down, he could only hold her hand and cry. They would come soon, armed men looking for their comrades, a horse winded. Simon listened for footsteps, voices. The horse flickered, almost his back. Simon jumped up and reached for the discarded sword. A shadow loomed against the sky. Opponent. He recognized her profile. She shied back when he took her dangling names. Simon led the horse away, Aaron's massive body, and tied her to a bush. Crouching at Amala's side, he kissed her and said, Epona came back for you. She gasped and nodded. Ride, Simon. Simon took her head. I cannot, because I love you. Watch the moon. Watch the moon. And carefully. And God, girl, forgive me. With that, he grasped the arrow shaft in both hands and pushed down. Amala screamed and twisted. Simon pushed harder, pinning her to the ground. With a soft crunch, the shaft moved and then broke off just above her chest. He lurched forward and caught himself. Don't think, just do it. He turned her over. Glistening in the moonlight, the rough iron point protruded from Amala's back. Simon bent, gripped it in his teeth, and drew it out. Blood, so much blood. The wound itself bubbled and hissed as the girl struggled to breathe. Simon cut her shirt into rags and tied them around her. Amala seemed dazed, listless. Her wound still bubbled and bled. Her pneuma, her vital essence escapes. Simon tried holding his hand over the hole to stop the bubbling, only for as long as he melted. Flesh to cover, covered flesh. He needed something to imprison the life force within her chest. An arrow through his heart, Perrin lay, lay nearby. Simon drew his dagger and cut two patches of skin from his neck. Flesh against flesh, he pressed them to all his wounds and tied them tight with strips of cloth. She gasped and coughed. Simon held her down. But still, rest. You stretched out next to her and touched her lips. It is done. The worst is over. But we, we must leave soon. She touched his lips in return. Your face. It was burned in the fight, but I will heal. You must. Simon broke down and then opened his eyes. You must live. Could not go on if you die. Simon's return meant the dogs must have given up and wandered home. Simon's Epona's return meant the dogs must give up and wandered home. Simon pictured what came next, the search, the chase. How many did I kill? Six, seven? Even if he took Amala and fled, the bodies and the blood would come, there would come outrage and pursuit. In daylight, the hunter's bows would cut them both down, if they dared follow. Simon retrieved the sword and turned it to its fallen owner. It took him three blows to sever the neck and detach the head. He jammed the blade into the ground and mounted the head on its pommel. The moon had crossed half the sky before Simon drew the arrow from Epona's hip and transferred all his gear from Perrin's saddle. Once more he knelt at Amala's side. You must stand now. Take my arm. She struggled, wobbling. Simon closed his closed her vest, and draped both cloaks over her back. When she demurred, he shook his head. Wear them. You must stay warm. It's the ague that nearly killed my friend Johan. He led her to Epona. Now you must ride as well. I know you can do this, my wife. I will help you up. 
Simon led them into the forest, contouring along the southern hillside. He didn't look back, didn't strain for the sound of baying dogs. All they could do was flee and hope their pursuers wouldn't risk more losses. So the chapters ends there. Wow. Uh, see, what's our time look like? Do I have a few more minutes? Do you want to find yeah. out what happens to Amala? Yeah, we have a few minutes. Okay. Well, this next chapter, Divine Madness. The trail be behind them had already filled with evening shadows, but standing in the gap between two looming peaks, Simon gazed out on the sunlit plain, sparkling with rivers. So close, so damnably close, he returned his attention to Amala. She lay swaddled in blankets and robes. A fire crackled nearby. Still, the girls shivered. They'd fled through the forest all that night. Amala clung to the saddle while Simon led Epona. Blundering between the trees and bushes, daylight found them climbing a narrow valley. He had been overjoyed to see that they'd stumbled upon the same southern path they'd been following from Baba Jazinka's cottage. Three days they'd climbed. For three days, Amala grew weaker with every burst. Simon had rebandaged her every morning and every evening. He'd washed the foul humors that wept from the hole in her back, even though the precious Numa no longer bubbled from her chest. The girl's life force slowly crept away. Topping the pass, she looked up, then swayed in the saddle and fell. Simon had barely caught her in time, his right shoulder screaming in protest. Kneeling at his wife's side, he waited for that dark hour, and this is where He's learned something in the in the interim. He waited for that dark hour between vespers and matins, uh, hours uh, the hours the church used at that time. Simon knew the hour uh, between vespers and matins when so the sun had gone and the moon, past full, hadn't yet risen. Such hours, Simon knew, were propitious to the art, his art, goetia, conjuration. Johann said it, Simon thought. The sword was never my weapon. I walked the edge of darkness, the hidden hand, the esoteric path. He watched the sun fade. Simon held his silver talisman for healing. Invocation won't be enough. Amala needs a summoning. His chest ached at the thought. The claw still lived in his heart. Entity is bound as token. He tried to recall the basic steps of a summoning. Invocation, purification, invitation, offering, and abjuration. Years earlier, a lifetime it seemed. He remembered watching, assisting, the beatings when he missed a word or reversed a sequence. He remembered those as well. The claw ever present in his chest crushed his heart, throttled his breath. Simon knew now that it had no real power over him other than fear. He bore the pain of a broken shoulder and burned face. He endured the ultimate fear of losing Amala. Muffin Kulo, he cursed between, beneath his breast. Only, yes, only another foe to overcome. The sun having set, he chanted a few lines. The Latin of the high church, the Latin of Rome. They formed a simple, simple invocation. He recognized most of the words. Purification normally took days. But Simon knew a simple shortcut. He placed his token in the fire for a moment, then flipped it into his right palm. Crushing his eyes shut, he shuddered and gasped until the smell of burning flesh no longer rose from his hands. 
Simon invited the entity, not knowing what he would see. Something, something he'd forgotten. It hardly mattered. Time was short. From behind him, he heard it speak. Simon de Villa, you dare summon me without protective circle. Perfect lap. Simon didn't turn. Of course, I should have girded myself in symbols and incense. He realized it was, if it was going to kill him, it would have done so already. He focused on the talisman. I come to you unguard, unguarded because I am asking your help. A disgusting toad that walked on woman's legs approached him. One in your position should be more cautious, more than he expected less than he feared. It stood just within his circle of firelight. Simon examined the creature. You are not a demon, nor an angel. Who has bound this talisman? It laughed. A high musical sound, totally at odds with the creature's appearance. Simon de Villa, Simon Prostoy, Simon the Fool. You've summoned a goddess without knowing first. Who would come. I've called the entity who chose to bind this talisman for healing. I trust you are such. The image slowly transformed. It is said that men must worship the gods of this earth, but none know whom the gods themselves must worship. In the flickering circle of firelight, the thing took on the aspect of an old woman. Naked, hanging duds, a tangled nest of gray hair on her head and between her legs, she leered at him. It will tell you a secret. The gods worship fools such as yourself. You have summoned Febris to your fire, goddess of healing, of disease and decay. Can you heal my wife? The old hag grew twice her size and loomed over him. You are the most naive fool of all the fools ever to call on me. Why should I not just fill you both with pestilence before I depart? How would that serve you? Serve me? Healing is temporary. Only death is eternal. Only decay serves me. Then give her healing now. You will get her death in good time. Febris, Febris straightened and diminished. I can heal your precious but I must have something return, Simon. I offer you her life for yours. Are you prepared to make such a pact? He thought of me. Always there had been a negotiation. Simon didn't know what to give. Anything? His death would leave Mala alone, deserted. He shook his head. Make a better offer. Febris, goddess of disease, laughed in his face. Her breath smelled of septic wounds and open graves. Very well, fool, I offer this. Give me ten years from the end of your life in return for healing her tonight. Simon started to respond, but Febris continued. Think long and hard, Simon de Villa. You might die this instant. You might die full of health, cradling your newborn son. But you will die ten years before your time. Simon held up his hand and shook his head. 
No more discussions. I accept your terms. The moon will rise soon, goddess. Heal her now and be gone before it does. Debris smiled. It is done. She lives. Let me give you one more gift, fool. You will die on the evening of your greatest triumph, in the arms of your beloved. Carry that knowledge always with you. And fear me. With that, Ebrus stepped back and the fire faded. The silver talisman in Simon's hand crumbled to He stared at it a moment and then turned and lifted the She awoke with a start and gasped, twisting in his arms. I breathe, I breathe. Ow! You live. So your face, she ran a gentle hand. Simon realized that he held her cradled in his both arms. He lowered her feet to the ground and shook out his right shoulder. Minor pain, nothing else. He touched his cheek where she had stroked him. A scab flaked off under his fingertips. The skin beneath smoothed. Febris had indeed given him a gift. I had to use a talisman. He touched his cheek. It worked. They talked that as the moon crept. I will stop right there for a moment. Mm. Um, actually, I'll stop right there. Yeah, That's, I was going to say we only have a few minutes left. <laughs> the uh, the talismans are always have a reaction if you use them. He had vowed not to use them. That's why he hadn't used it in the beginning. So there we are. Pushing two hours. I never <laughs> thought it was that long. Did you think we'd be talking this long? No. <laughs> That's what always happens. You have that right cackle. You should be my Febris. <laughs> That's what always happens in fantasy authors. We end up talking. We have a lot to talk about. Yeah. But this yeah. has been fantastic. Is there any last words you want to say about the half sword? Only, um, you know, for people who like a strong dose of history and um, don't have to be riding dragons through the sky of a fantasy world. Um, I think you'd probably like half sword. And I'd rather, if you don't care for that kind of, that kind of writing, um, go with something, go with something of, of Melendez or there's <laughs> lots of other great stuff out there. I mean, it really is. It's all good. It's, everyone has their own style, which is also all good. So enjoy. Ho hopefully people enjoyed, stayed here, stopped watching cat videos long enough to hear a few words. Melinda, thank you so much for this opportunity. It You're is welcome. A true pleasure. You're welcome. You can come back next year. When we can talk about book two and see if you, uh, if you got it done by June. <laughs> if you made it in time. <laughs> And if I made it, die. Yeah. So thank okay. you so well, much. Sign off now. Do I wave my hand or? You... Nope. Oh, oh, you you chill, and I'll do our outro. <laughs> so thank you, Christopher Madsen, and and you know thank you for coming on and talking about Half Sword. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. And I've been your indie fantasy author, Melinda Gusera, and been joined by a fellow indie author. And that will do it for this episode of Fantasy Lore and More. And 
if you're listening to this and it's still October of 2023, go check out my Kickstarter for special editions of the Curse Breaker series. That is running until October 14th at 10.56 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it is fully funded, so there's no risk. Any pledges now, you will definitely get your books. And if you're listening to this after that time, you can still buy them. We're funded, so as long as we stay funded, those omnibuses will be available afterwards. So thank you so much.